Volatility is the degree of fluctuation of something's price. Highly volatile assets may see rapid and large price changes, while less volatile assets will maintain a steady price. This concept is important in decentralized finance because cryptocurrencies tend to be volatile assets. The company Synthetix provides assets called synths that provide exposure to an asset without holding the underlying resource. For example, you can hold and trade synths that track the price of USD, synthetic gold and silver, and other currencies and commodities. Users use synthetics to track the price equivalents of real-world assets on Ethereum. This lets them diversify their investment portfolios with less volatile assets while staying on the blockchain and executing trades against smart contracts. In today's episode, we talk with Justin Moses, CTO at Synthetics. Previously, Justin worked as a CTO at Haven and as a tech advisor at BlueShift. We discuss derivatives trading in DeFi, the liquidity and volatility of synthetic assets, and the rewards and features available from using synthetics. Justin, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeffrey. Good to be here. Simple question. What is a synthetic asset? A synthetic asset is something that derives its value from something else. I guess So typically, a synthetic is not the same as the real asset. Holding this synthetic is not like holding an asset, but you're holding something that effectively matches the price of the asset. Why are synthetic assets important in traditional markets? I mean, I think synthetic assets are effectively their derivatives, right? And I'm sure a number of you, a number of you viewers have heard about derivatives and what they are, but they basically allow you to derive extra value from something. They're useful in that, you know, one thing, let's say, you know, the price of, I don't know, the, the price of the Australian dollar to the US dollar, for example, or say the price of the Tesla, um, price of Tesla on the NASDAQ, or even say the price of Bitcoin, these are useful things and they can, they have use cases all you know, around the world. You also have things like mortgage-backed securities and stuff that obviously we, we've all heard what happened in the, the 2008 credit crisis, but it allows people to create more value and more financial instruments from, from a thing than is traditionally available. What kinds of problems would synthetic assets solve in the blockchain space or the DeFi space? So the sort of problems that synthetic assets solve is it gives people access to things that they may not be able to get otherwise. They may want access to the price action of, say, you know, securities in, in some country they don't, they're not a re- registered investor in. They may want to have access to a, a currency, say even the US dollar, right, that they can't get access to based on their, their country you know, the rules that the government has applied on some of them. Or they may want to, even on, say, on a blockchain like Ethereum, they may want to hold something that tracks the value of an asset on another blockchain and they don't want to have to actually custody the, the asset on the other blockchain. So if you're on Ethereum, you could potentially have, excuse me, a synthetic Litecoin instrument that effectively tracks the price of Litecoin but doesn't require you as an Ethereum user to actually go and exchange it and have a wallet um, and set up an account on a, on uh, the Litecoin uh, blockchain, for instance. What about problems around liquidity and slippage? Are there are there problems around liquidity and slippage that could be addressed by synthetic assets? Yeah, I mean, I think with our platform, I mean, the way it works in a nutshell is effectively that everyone who participates in creating the um, debt pool, we call it. So everyone who puts up collateral in the form of our token into a contract and basically issues debt, those people are rewarded for their 
you know, those people are obviously rewarded for their service, right? By getting paid back every, uh, you know, periodically, every week. But what they, what that does is in synthetics perspective, it basically creates this big undifferentiated pool of debt. And that means that anyone can take one part of that debt pool that they can buy off any market, say buying a synthetic USD, and they can reprice it into anything else that is offered as a synthetic asset. So if you were able to, to you know, access, let's say, a thousand SUSD, you can then immediately turn that straight into synthetic Bitcoin or synthetic Tesla or you know, you know synthetic you know AUD or JPY or what have you, um, and you don't get slippage because what you're really doing is you're repricing a piece of a debt pool, right, from one asset to another. The other side of that that trade is actually the aggregate of synthetic stakers. So it's kind of an, it's sort of a novel way to sort of trade. So it's instead of it being like an order book based where you would you know, there'd be someone who'd make a trade and someone who'd take the trade and um, you need to match it, right? Instead of that, what you have is this idea that there's this, you know, as long as you get access to any synthetic asset, you can immediately convert it, shall we say, to any other synthetic asset without slippage. Slippage is, you know, typically when there's, as you say, there's not enough liquidity, right? There's enough people on the other side of the trade. Um, so you have to accept a poorer price. In synthetics, we, we use the term infinite liquidity because as long as you can get any synthetic asset, as much as you can get on off market of it. And right now I think there's about in order of like the debt pool is about 600 and something million in size. As long as you can get any part of that, however you can, you can convert hundred percent of it to any other synthetic asset without slippage. You just pay the, the exchange fee, an exchange fee, which is anywhere from 30 bips. So 0.3% to hundred bips and gets paid and distributed proportionally to the people on the other side of the trade, which are the synthetic stakers who take the risk by basically having a piece of this debt pool, you know, uh, having that sort of debt tied to them. So we've kind of skipped over the basics of what you're building, of what synthetics is. Can you explain what synthetics is in one sentence? Yeah, it's a decentralized derivatives platform that allows anyone to participate in the, the trading of uh, synthetic assets. And reiterate, what are the problems that synthetics solves in the existing DeFi space? I mean, so synthetics is one of the early, the early sort of proponents of, of DeFi. It actually originally came from a project called Haven that was actually a decentralized stablecoin, a little similar to Maker and DAI. And sort of evolved into this sort of derivatives platform, and we're really trying to solve you know people's access to to all sorts of different assets that they couldn't otherwise acquire while they are still on Ethereum, right? So we basically allow people to get access to any of this stuff, um, even the stuff that might not be very well traded. So maybe something like I'm just thinking of something like Dash, right? We have synthetic Dash you can still get access to that and you can trade that without worrying about the fact that it's probably, you know, there's very little people trading a synthetic dash on um, Ethereum, but you can still trade it uh, for 100% of its value into any other synthetic asset. So basically giving people access to, I guess, a long tail of, of assets that they couldn't otherwise uh, access and trade. Walk me through what happens if I want to use synthetics. What is a typical... A typical interaction that a user might have with synthetics. Right. Well, there's actually two main classes of users. 
there are stakers and there will be traders. So a trader is the one I've mostly been talking about. This would be a person who say they have a, a pile of ether in their wallet and they would say, I want to get access to you know, synthetic dash, as we were saying before, or I want to get access to, I don't know, synthetic EOS, right? While, while I'm still on Ethereum, right? They can basically take their ether and they can use an aggregator like one inch, right? And they can uh, convert their ether into SUSD at whatever the market rate is. So that's using that, you know, one inch is a, an aggregator that will look on chain for all sorts of different smart contracts that can convert ether to SUSD. Then they'll get a pile of SUSD and now they're holding a synthetic asset, synthetic dollars. And then they can go on to a DAP, a decentralized app called Quenta, and they can convert 100% of their SUSD into any other synthetic asset for the fee of, as I said, something on the order of 30, 50, 100 bips, depending on the asset. Um, and 100% of the value uh, minus the fee will be converted at the current market rate. And at any time in the future, they can then convert that you know, synthetic EOS, say, into any other synth. They don't have to go back through synthetic US dollars. They can go directly to, say, synthetic Bitcoin, you know, for instance, um, and go straight to it again with only paying that, um, only paying that fee, the exchange fee for whatever the, the asset they're going into is. So the, the, that's the trader workflow. Now, the, that's powered by the staker workflow. And so the staker workflow is a person who acquires SNX, our um, collateral token somehow. So potentially they'd also take Ether and maybe they would go into one inch or maybe even Uniswap or, or any of the many or Curve or any of the many places to get assets and they would re exchange their Ether for synthetics, you know, paying whatever rate those aggregators charge them or, or um, those, you know, swapping utilities charge them. And then they would take that SNX and they would take go it, take it to a DAP called staking and they would stake it, basically effectively locking it in place and they would issue for themselves some synthetic US dollar. And they then can trade that synthetic US dollar as someone would on Quenta or they can put it into different uh, places on Ethereum to get a yield. So they can put it into Curve, right? Curve is a, you know, another DeFi protocol and they then get a piece of the curve, you know, they get a liquidity pool, a LP token, you know, a pool liquidity token, and then they can stake it with us and get incentives back with synthetics. But regardless, the, the act of staking SNX and issuing debt means two things. It means one, that the person who stakes is now a decentralized piece of the, uh, of the debt pool. They are contributing to basically this power that is, anyone can move a synthetic, you know, one synthetic asset into another. And for that, they get paid on a weekly basis a percentage of the exchange fees. So, you know, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, miners, you know, on Ethereum or Bitcoin are basically being incentivized by the fees, the transaction fees that happen in every block they mine. Now, we also, the protocol also gives uh, inflation. So there's a, a set inflation schedule. And every week, these get divvied out in proportion to the SNX stakers based on how much debt they hold. And that's a little bit like block rewards, I mean, mining block rewards. And the idea is that this is a bit of a bootstrapping mechanism, a bit of a bootstrapping mechanism, a little bit like Ethereum and Bitcoin. The idea is that those block rewards over time will die out um, and the trans transaction fee should be sufficient. Now, obviously, Ethereum is moving to, to proof of stake and stuff, but the, the idea of proof of work you know, in Bitcoin and, and ETH1 uh, versions are basically that that you don't need to give block rewards eventually. The, the network will power itself. 
so a staker's role, as I said, is obviously the stake and to issue these stable coins um, and then distribute them however they distribute them. And then they get paid for doing that. Now, they obviously have a risk, as I sort of mentioned before. And the risk to them is that the debt that they hold isn't just the SUSD that they were issued. The debt that they hold is actually variable. They hold a percentage of the debt pool. And, as the, and the debt pool is denominated in all the different synthetic assets that we mentioned. So for a staker, there is actually some risk there, right? Because you're, if the price of the, all the assets inside the debt pool go up, then the debt pool goes up. So if you ever want to reclaim your SNX that you have locked away as a staker, you need to pay that debt off, right? And so you'll need to acquire more SUSD somehow in order to pay off your debt get your SNX back and then you can transfer it away and sell it or what have you. So if I'm a participant in synthetics, I need to stake, I need to put up collateral and that's going to be either SNX tokens or, or ether, right? So as I said before, there's two ways to participate. Like if you want to be part of the protocol in terms of, giving people access to synthetic assets, then yes, you would stake. If you want to just use the protocol in order to acquire synthetic assets, you know, or even to not even acquire them, but just to use them for their liquidity, which I can get into if you want, then you don't need to stake at all. You just need to acquire synthetic. You don't have any, if you acquire SUSD via OneInch or or Uniswap, you know, you don't have any debt risk. So there's very much two, two different classes of users. But yes, if you are the one who wants to stake and, and sort of get these uh, rewards periodically, then yes, you need to stake SNX or we actually have other ways, as you mentioned, you can actually use, you can take out a loan using Ether as well. Um, and I think REN, I think we have support for REN BTC as well, which is a, one of the BTC assets on Ethereum. So again, if I want to mint a new SNX token, how does that SNX token get minted from a system perspective why and how do do snx tokens get minted so you as such wouldn't really effectively mint that token the protocol has a is programmed with one of our contracts called supply schedule you know on a predetermined schedule to emit an amount of snx every week or, or mint more snx now one of the problems when you're engineering on blockchain is how do you do scheduled tasks and the way you typically do this is you actually incentivize people, third-party people, you just refer to them as keepers, to call the function for you. So every week at a certain time, the SNX supply can be minted by any user effectively. They can call function the contract and they can pay the gas cost in Ether and a deterministic amount of SNX gets issued and it gets distributed to another contract that we call our reward escrow contract. And then eventually every week when people then claim their rewards, they get a piece of that SNX taken to them. So I guess you could say one user every week does mint more SNX supply, but anyone could do that. It's really just a it's really just a scheduled task, if you will, that's programmed into the contracts. Or at least it's a scheduled task that can be performed every week once after a certain time threshold has elapsed. Are there a pre-approved list of synthetic asset types or can anybody mint any time and any any type of, of synthetic asset? No, because because the uh, risk to the debt pool is so high, you know, the debt pool is shared, so you know, there's nothing theoretically stopping 
everyone who has any synthetics from synthetic acid from moving into say SE synthetic ETH and SE could obviously go up and then everyone's debt would go up. It's, it's too, it'd be too risky to allow any type of asset to be, to be minted. So um, synthetic assets are chosen by, through a number of methodologies. Effectively what happens is people in the community will propose a new synthetic asset so one of them recently has been proposed is you know a curve. I think I saw another one, maybe for the DeFi Pulse Index. Uh, I think I've seen some other ones for more traditional equities like the SPY, the S and P Index. People said Fang stocks. But then what has to happen is there needs to be um, some research from a sort of a third party to say is there enough liquidity in this particular asset outside of synthetics? If let's say. For example, let's say if we we bring in an asset that isn't very liquid, so maybe there's only a million dollars of volume a day, and we say, well, we're going to have a synthetic version of it. Well, then somebody could manipulate the actual market, the real world market, with a million dollars or more a day, and then basically capitalize on it synthetically. Because the synthetic market, when someone when somebody trades on synthetics, it doesn't affect the the external spot market. So, for example, what happened was we had a we at one point synthetics supported Maker, the MKR token, right, the governance token for MakerDAO, and it seemed what happened is somebody ended up having somebody had some I don't know however many Maker tokens, a lot of them, thousands of them, and this person was actually was actually manipulating the price of Maker because I think the liquidity was only the volume was only about five million a day, and they were able to sell these Maker tokens. And right before that, they were able to go into our inverse synthetic maker, which basically moves in the opposite direction. And they were able to manipulate the price of maker because it was quite easy for one person to do that and make the profit on synthetics. So long story short, it's important for uh, the protocol to do due diligence on any synthetic asset before it uh, gets listed, right? Or gets basically, before it gets sort of permissioned into synthetics. And once it's permissioned, anyone can move any synth into that new uh, synthetic asset. So it's a, it's a process whereby people in the community submit what we call SIPs, a synthetic improvement proposal. The decentralized council, the Spartan council, the seven members who are elected every three week, uh, three months will basically vote on that, whether or not it's, it's worthwhile. Um, and we'll have a study will go off uh, by third party to figure out is there enough liquidity for it. And assuming all that flies, then, then the synth will actually be implemented and added into the system. So right now we have a, a SIP, I believe it's uh, 113, SIP113, for adding KRW, Korean one in. And I believe that's been approved. Or I, when I talked to the council last, they were, I think they were interested in, in, in going ahead with it. And we're pretty confident that Korean one has enough, enough external liquidity that no one person could manipulate the Korean one market. Well, not, not easily enough anyway. Why did you choose to build synthetics on the Ethereum blockchain instead of a side chain or a new chain? Like, I want to I want to start to get into the implementation details and, and the smart contracts, but let's let's just give an overview of of the basic implementation choices. Yeah, I mean, I think the protocol came from it, you know, evolved out of a, a thing called the Haven Protocol, H A W V E N. And as I said before, it was designed uh, as a sort of decentralized stablecoin. And, you know, at the time in 2017, you know, Ethereum was very much the, you know, the bee's knees of, of smart contracts, um, software, smart contract infrastructure, and, you know, we we're big believers in it. 
And so the project, the protocol ICO'd on, uh, in 20, early 2018 uh, on Ethereum, which was honestly the, it was the, at the time, it was the most evolved platform, had the most support, and it was the easiest to, easiest to get going on. And, and it felt like the most robust. And over time, you know, late into 20, uh, so we got into 2018, and obviously we went into the, slowly started going to the crypto winter. You know, lots of other ETH killers, blockchain, 3.0, as they called them, like EOS and stuff, you know, became very prevalent. And I indeed actually ended up spending about a month personally looking into porting some of our contracts over onto, onto EOS. And EOS is using, you know, uses C++ for their smart contract language. And the thing that really struck me, and this is anecdotal, of course, but the thing that really, really struck me was how little, how little support there was in the developer community over there. It really felt like, you know, there was a lot of money. There was a lot of big block producers trying to push this whole new EOS ecosystem. And everyone's like, oh, the technology and the throughput and TPS transactions per second. But it was really just crickets out there, you know, and I was writing open source software even. I was basically taking some of the stuff that I would consider, you know, table stakes, which is I want smart contracts to be tested and I want to be, and I want them tested in, you know, in CI, so Circle CI. And, you know, I had to write a bunch of stuff in Docker and connect all the dots and got it all working. And, and again, still crickets. Like no one was, there was one other engineer in Brazil that I was actually talking to out of the thousands on this, on this Telegram channel. You know, and this was just such a difference to Ethereum. Now, you know, I come from the, the, the JavaScript node world, you know, particularly the node world. And, you know, it felt to me like when I first got into Ethereum, there was definitely a lot of synergies with JavaScript and Solidity. Now, obviously, they're different in many ways, but they just felt like there was uh, some overlap there. And I felt like lots of great people and, and great ideas were coming up and being sort of blossoming in the Ethereum ecosystem. And I just, I mean, EOS, I was just like, this is this is a, a wasteland. You know, it wasn't there. It wasn't the support for it. It just felt like lip service to what a blockchain is. It was like, okay, everything, they're hitting all the right notes in terms of, you know, in terms of, okay, this is what the blockchain technology is and it's what it does, but they just didn't have that groundswell of developers. You know, and I think very much that, you know, this anecdote illustrates that Ethereum has an incredible uh, ecosystem of you know smart contract engineers now solidity is obviously quite mature you know it seems like it's it's kind of really eclipsed even viper which is like another language that it's a python like language that compiles into the evm code but i think that the value of something like solidity it's procedural it feels somewhat like javascript you know it's a c-based language it feels like that uh plus all the infrastructure now it's come up has really given it an incredible lead so for us you know while we do look around here and there for you know what else is happening, it would take a lot to I guess convince the the core contributors of synthetics to be like, hey, we need to support another chain or another protocol because perhaps we got a bit you know perhaps we got a bit lucky that the no ETH killer came along and, and dethroned Ethereum, but now we're at a point where you know even though gas is you know, incredibly incredibly expensive and very prohibitive for a lot of people, we still have an incredible amount of innovation in the space, which is. You know, hats off, I think, to the to the powers that be, and particularly like in the EF, who I think really do as hard as it is to do what the EF are doing, the Ethereum Foundation. I think they really lead first in terms of not prescribing, um, allowing different groups to come up and, and implement, you know, sometimes even competing solutions to the benefit of of the Ethereum community. So, walk me through the architecture of Synthetics. What are the contract types and what do they do? 
Okay. Well, it's probably one of the most complex smart contract suites on Ethereum. So I might never get, get through all of it. But effectively, what we have is we have an ERC20, which is a standard an Ethereum token for our synthetics token, SNX. And then we have an ERC20 token for all of the synthetic assets. So synthetic Ether, synthetic Bitcoin, synthetic USD. And these all on their own are tokens, right? And so they live inside your wallets and you, know, you can transfer them as all as expected. And they conform to the ERC20 interface, which is balance of, approve, transfer, et cetera, et cetera. And then we also have, we have proxies wrapping around our um, various contracts like synthetics and, and all the synths so that we're able to sort of change the, the brains of them as it were. So we kind of, we kind of have somewhat of the model view controller idea. So the controller is kind of the guts of our contracts, the brains of our contracts. The view is kind of the proxy and the models, the state contracts. And we sort of split them out that way. So we sort of have three contracts for a lot of the, the main things. So you'll see that for our for all of our tokens, we have like a, um, we'll have a proxy, like, sorry, for all of our synths, we'll have like a proxy, we'll have the synth, which is like the brains, and then we'll have the token state contract. Because as I'm sure a number of your viewers know that like a contract has logic, but it also has state, right? And when you need to upgrade logic, you know, the question is, do you migrate the state across or do you sort of re reach out to another sort of singleton contract to handle the state for you? So we have all these tokens, so we have all these synths and synthetics, and then we have a number of sort of contracts to help us do things. And one of the one of the difficulties in programming uh, on Ethereum is you're limited in certain ways. You're limited, obviously, by gas usage, uh, which can be somewhat frustrating. Sometimes you realize you shouldn't be doing loops, you shouldn't be calling externally, you should limit how much storage you use. Um, that can be quite difficult to, to work around. But another um, difficulty is actually the size of the contracts. They can only be a certain size. So you hit this uh, 24 kilobyte limit of the size of contracts, which is, I believe, EIP-173. So a few years ago, it was, a, it was required that, that the contracts be a certain maximum size. And for us in synthetics, a lot of our stuff you know, is intertwined because, as I mentioned before, we have this idea of a, a shared debt pool. And the debt pool is... Basically, the sum of the, the USD value of all of the synthetic assets out in the wild. And so to figure that out, you have to basically iterate over all these different synthetic assets and say, how many, what's the supply of these and what's the current market rate of them and add them all together, which is A, very gas intensive, right? Because of, because, you know, looping anything, any loop as you can imagine is going to require more gas, but also it requires reaching out to all these different contracts to kind of figure out, hey, you ask this contract, hey, what supplies you? You ask another contract, hey, what supplier you? That every time you ask, it's a, it's called an external call. That also costs gas. So we often find ourselves architecting and trying to find ways to reduce gas, but also accept that we have this 24 kilobyte limit per contract. So in synthetics, when you try to do something like Mint, which uh, our old DAP was called Minter, our new DAP is called Staking, we use the word mint in issue and stake kind of all fairly interchangeably. So whenever you do that action of minting or staking or issuing, you're effectively calling a function inside uh, the synthetics contract, which then we then call out to another contract, which is called the issuer contract to do all the heavy lifting because we just, there's just too much code to fit inside the synthetics contract. Right. And then if you want to claim every week, your rewards as an SNX staker, you'll reach into, the, uh, reach into the fee pool contract. 
to basically claim rewards from the free pool. And if you want to exchange one synth for another, you'll reach into through synthetics into the exchanger contract, right? That allows you to exchange uh, your synth for for any other synth in the system. And it's kind of the they're the kind of the, the crux contracts. There's other ones like a supply schedule, which is how often synthetics can be minted, as we, we talked about before. Um, there's an escrow contract which holds the rewards that 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 SNX stakers get every week. It holds them in escrow for 12 months. Yeah, there's a contract for liquidations. If somebody has issued too much debt for the amount of SNX they have, they can be liquidated by someone. And there's a contract that that handles all of the rates, the exchange rates. Um, it basically it reaches out to all the Chainlink aggregated feeds that are used in synthetics to figure out what are the rates of each synthetic that is supported in the protocol. So there's quite a lot of contracts, and there's still a bunch more that I haven't really talked about, but they're the they're the they're the crux. So most of the shows I do are about, I guess, normal software engineering or, you know, web apps and e-commerce stuff. This is very different. So, you know, a lot of the, the, the companies I cover do, you know, they have their architecture in Kubernetes and uh, deployed to cloud infrastructure, and the tooling is pretty good. Is the tooling in the Ethereum space just like super primitive and hard to work with? Relative to where I'm sure a number of your listeners, listeners are coming from, yes, I would say it's very primitive. But it's definitely had a real shot in the arm in the last year or so. There's been a couple of teams, one in particular, the group behind Hardhat, that have really taken, they've really leaned into better developer tooling. It's their passion. And the Ethereum Foundation have been giving them a lot of grants. There's a library called Ethers that has really been pushing the, the, the boundaries, but pushing the envelope, I should say. But, you know, when I was more... You know, when I was getting my head around it in 2017 and then deeper into 2018, I was pretty shocked at how bad things were. You know, coming again, coming from Node and just being like, you know, expecting all this tooling and just being flabbergasted at how little there is there. You know, there's like even to the point where, you know, my stuff, some of the stuff that I've written is still very prominent and used because just not a lot of people writing developer tooling in the space. I think, I mean, there's different parts of it. I, I think... For, for a listener who doesn't really understand about blockchain engineering, I think the best analogy I have and think about is that effectively your smart contracts are basically your application tier, right? And they're also your database because they have storage, right? And the blockchain is effectively your backend, right? So you effectively write this code, deploy it, you know, push it out to the to Ethereum. And then thankfully, you never really have to deal with availability. Right or uptime because your backend is now the blockchain, and so everyone around the world should have access to the blockchain as long. You know, obviously, you know one of the values is no one, you know, country can easily censor it, so anyone can get access to this, you know, to this contract. Right, and the other cool thing about most blockchains, Ethereum, for example, anyone can read that data whenever they want, so it's free for anyone to read anything at any point. So you know, all sorts of cool tools exist out there for just reading you know, data of all this state. Now, you know, you, you can try and encrypt it if you want, but it's very difficult actually to encrypt anything, you know, truly. There are ways to do it, but it's very difficult. And, you know, sort of open, it, it creates this very different system, right? Where people I think are used to like, okay, I write my, have my infrastructure, as you said, you know, Kubernetes or whatever, and I, you know, deploy all my infrastructure and my database up here, blah, blah, blah. But the blockchain, you know, effectively will do all that for you, right? But the costs are that, it's obviously it can be slow to deploy, it can be difficult, it can cost you a lot of money to deploy in terms of gas. 
And then you have to deal with these limitations that I mentioned. Like you have to fit your code into contracts. Your users have to pay every time they want to do anything, like every time they want to transact, right? So it's a very different paradigm, I think. But, you know, the thing that I've loved, one of the things I love the most about is because I'm very much a tinkerer, I've enjoyed that there hasn't been a ton of tooling because I've liked writing some of it. It's been fun to, to write some of the tools and it feels very much like virgin territory. It feels a bit like when a lot of Ruby people went over to Node in the early days and they were just writing because you know, Ruby was so, or the gem world was so rich with all these cool gems and Rails gems and this, that. And then with Node, everyone started writing all this you know cool stuff. And then, you know, and then it came with React. I mean, we had it with Backbone for a little bit, but then, you know, obviously with React and maybe even a bit with Angular, you know, and like there was all this this innovation that happened, and I feel like that's that's happened to somewhat to Ethereum, but in some ways it hasn't because it hasn't just been JavaScript people. We've had people from all sorts of different backgrounds come in. Um, some people have been Python and what have you, and it hasn't ever chosen a developer tooling language. I think TypeScript's becoming a little bit of the the de facto choice, but you know, still fairly nascent, I think, in terms of developer tooling in the space. So how are people actually using synthetics? How is it getting used in practice? So in practice, I think lots of people are using it to get access to something like, but it isn't on Ethereum. So lots of people are using it to get access to synthetic Bitcoin, for example. So if you have access to, you know, the, the two, the three kind of main contenders of holding Bitcoin on uh, Ethereum would be wrapped Bitcoin, Red BTC and synthetic Bitcoin. And so I think a lot of people are using it as a way to hold their Bitcoin. They can just get synthetic Bitcoin rather than having to hold one of these other ones. Like now, wrapped Bitcoin is obviously uh, centralized, if you were. Like there is actually uh, a team that are actually, you know, custodying the Bitcoin. Uh, and if you are a decentralization maximalist, you would not, you know, want to carry something like that. Whereas Ren BTC is, is, is much further decentralized. But then you could argue synthetic Bitcoin is even more decentralized. So that's definitely one big UK use case. And then there are a lot of things that we have um, a synthetic DeFi index. So we basically are an index of all the different DeFi protocols. And people have found that to be a very useful um, instrument to hold because it gives them exposure to a number of different um, DeFi protocols. We've had invert, inverse synths that I kind of touched on before, which are synths that are basically like shorts, kind of like shorts, but not truly. They've been somewhat problematic um, for us because they require a lot of manual intervention from the core contributors to maintain them because the way that they work is they require a moment in time when they're created. You know, this sort of the way that these sort of financial instruments work and that the math that works on them is only works when the the price is within some sort of bounds of when it was created. So people but people do like holding those inverse synths because they're an easy way to get kind of inverse price movement. You know, you hold an inverse in the ieth synth and as the price of eth goes down your price of your ieth goes up for example so this has been the sort of the big one of the big main use cases but another one that's sort of come up not too long ago that's been worked on by the team at curve has been cross asset swaps so we talk about synthetics as being this this big debt pool where you can move any synth one synth to any other synth and so what sort of happened or the insight that happened, you know, with Curve and from us was that people could step through synthetics as a step through to go from one asset to another. 
So one of the big problems on, uh, you know, on Ethereum right now is the amount of slippage you get if you try to move from Ether to a stablecoin. So if you hold Ether and you want to move, you know, like and we're talking significant amounts, like so we're probably like you know, in the millions of dollars worth. But once you start trying to move like say a million dollars or more of, of Ether into say USDC or USDT, you'll see a lot of slippage, right? Just because the various uh, AMMs, the, the auto market makers like Uniswap and what have you, only have so much liquidity. And once you start draining too much of the liquidity in one trade, you'll get a lot of slippage. And so what Curve has done has created a way to go from something like Ether or Wrap Bitcoin to a stablecoin. And one of the steps is they hop through synthetics. So let's say you have Wrap Bitcoin, right? Or let's say Ether, just for, for sake of argument. So you, let's say you held Ether and you wanted to move Ether, maybe a thousand Ether, let's say, for instance. You know, so let's say you had a thousand Ether and you wanted to move that through to stablecoin. What Curve has done is allowed you to do, you can, wrap, you can take that thousand Ether you can swap it in Curve for uh, a thousand synthetic ether that are ready to go there for you, and then you can. It will then in a contract. It will take. Uh, it'll reach out and it'll reach the synthetics and say, "Hey, I want to convert this thousand synthetic ether to synthetic US dollars." It does that with the thirty bit fee, right? And then the last step is it needs to convert that synthetic USD to the USDC stablecoin, which you can do after a few minutes of, of what we call our waiting period, just so. The price is um, just to make sure that there's no price volatility. So that's a really interesting use case of using synthetics as a protocol to achieve an aim that actually wasn't really necessarily what synthetics was, you know, created for initially. But it's a but it's a nifty use of the protocol to get that zero slippage, a sort of a stepping stone between different assets. I mean, there are actually another another thing about there's another um, there's an interesting. Other protocol um, that's come out of Australia called DHedge, and their kind of idea is that it's like this decentralized hedge fund managers, and they use things like uh, synthetic assets to very quickly and easily compile a, a portfolio, right? And you can basically go in there and say, I want to follow somebody's portfolio. I want to, you know, let that person, I want to buy into what their portfolio is and let this person be like a decentralized asset manager. You know, and that's another really interesting thing that's, uh, that's popped up that uses the synthetic protocol that could be, you know, a lot of people found very, very useful. So what is the current state of the company built around synthetics? Like, how does the company get rewarded and and what are you working on? So the, there actually is no company as such anymore. It's just a DAO. So there was a company at one point when, this, the, when there was money raised, but that has been dissolved into uh, a various DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations. And these DAOs are effectively contracts that live on Ethereum that, that hold, hold capital in the form of you know, Ether or stablecoins, right? So the company itself, it is, there is no company. And so the people that, that do get paid by the protocol effectively would just submit, you know, uh, submit expenses to the protocol that would then pay for the, you know, send them, send them crypto if they, uh, you know, for their services, right, over time. Which can present challenges, right? So it means that if anyone ever wants to get paid by a protocol, they need to be they're an independent contractor, you know, and they have to do stuff that way. For example, there can be certain there definitely can it's definitely not that easy, right, to to be fully decentralized in that way. But that's something that the that the powers that be and the people that you know the people that be involved in the protocol really care about is being decentralized first. And your second question is: is the future? What is the future of the company or the protocol? 
Well, I didn't didn't ask you about the future quite yet, but but we should go there. Let's let's start to talk about the future. I guess first, yeah, the future of of synthetics, and then the future of DeFi in general. I mean, the future of synthetics. A big part of it is we're already on a layer two. So optimistic Ethereum, are the team that used to be a Plasma team, and they're very close to the EF, and they've been working very heavily on this idea of optimistic rollups. And it's a way of basically basically providing faster and cheaper transactions um, in Ethereum. And so we've been working with them uh, to get our stuff onto this layer two. And it's different from a sidechain in that effectively it is like this. Sorry, it's kind of like this miniaturized version. Like you basically, it takes a lot of the heavy lifting of Ethereum. It does it on a it does it on its own layer, and then just rolls up the summaries of the transactions into layer one. So it uses the main Ethereum chain to secure its value. And so for us, we've already started putting some of our infrastructure on there. So we actually support that right now, where you can take your synthetics on Ethereum and you can actually deposit it onto this layer two and actually start issuing SUSD on layer two. And so the future for us is very much about supporting more functionality on layer two. So you'll be able to actually exchange synths on layer two and effectively you can do it a lot cheaper. And then that, that unfortunately does create a lot more complexity. I don't know if any of your um, listeners can imagine, but like, you know, from our perspective now, we have this different dimension of contracts that live on, not just on layer one, but now we have a different dimension of layer two. And we're trying to constantly, we're maintaining the same code base, but that requires a little bit of, you know, polymorphic funds. So we have to write, different kind of implement, slightly different implementations uh, for layer two, just based on some certain some certain requirements and things that the, the layer two engine can do based on the fact that it's quite a sophisticated piece of technology. But for us, we very much want to keep de- delivering and moving on to layer two because it's cheaper and um, we see it a lot more interesting composability benefits. Now, we didn't talk about composability at all, but I think that one thing that's very exciting in the space of DeFi that for engineers is this idea of composability that that anyone can write a contract and that contract is a first-class citizen of Ethereum just like a, it can hold tokens, it can interact with anyone else and there's a lot of power in that because then you can write a contract that just does a number of things for you. You can write it to do a number of your tasks but you can also you know, deterministically say this contract is going to do this if someone gives it money. You know, we call it, you know, people like to call it programmable money and stuff like that. But it is a very, very powerful piece of technology because it allows these network effects. As more developers come in and they start to understand it, they can sort of build these building blocks. You know, oh, I can take this thing from Curve and then I can move it through synthetics and then I can swap it through Uniswap and then I can do this and then I can do that. So for us, you know, as layer two becomes more and more prevalent, we expect to see a lot of interesting composability to happen on layer two that that won't happen on layer one right now because layer one is just too expensive in gas to do anything for most normal, you know, innovative projects. And it's going to cost you somewhere between, you know, in my current day prices between 200 to $500 per transaction to do stuff. You're just not going to get innovation. So for us, we're, we're really excited to keep, keep working with optimism and see where they're going and, and get them to their, their mainnet, which is, which is coming out pretty soon. And the other big thing for us is, is basically futures. So, you know, what we have right now is effectively these these synths that we we think of them as spot synths. They're just they basically just tra- they track the price of the spot market. But the idea of futures is that we'd actually have a balanced portfolio of. If any of you have ever traded futures, you sort of get this idea that you have longs and shorts, and that you have this idea of these perpetual futures that are constantly being managed every eight hours, and you basically look 
look back and say, you know, these people have these positions open, who should be liquidated, who shouldn't, who pays interest to who. It's a very sophisticated way of handling derivatives and it's something that we see as a, a huge part of our future. But it's very difficult to do stuff like this on a blockchain because of that problem I mentioned before and that how do you do scheduled tasks? How do you get stuff to happen regularly? You can't just run it, you know, you have to pay the gas to do it. You have to write a bot that constantly does the thing for you and if that's mission critical to you, that can be a real problem because what happens if the bot breaks down, runs out of ETH, you know, whatever, you know, it's his own realm of problems. So for us, getting deeper onto L2, supporting futures, and the other main, main thing is us basically doing a massive rewrite of our architecture, what we're, we're calling it V3. And for us, a, a big part of that theme, besides a lot of functionality, is, is trying to be better Ethereum citizens. I think we've been a little bit... <laughs> we've sort of done things our own way a, a bunch and I think that's hurt us in terms of integrating with other protocols and I think it's something that that we're very very keen to remediate you know we for example a lot of protocols like Car Compound Aave Uniswap when you do a thing like when you give away a token like in Aave if you were to say I want to deposit some SUSD they will give you a, a wrapped token called an ASUSD token back which is like your claim on it they don't have to do that and in Ethereum, they could just say they could just leave it in their contract. They don't have to create a token, but by tokenizing it, it gives the users something tangible. And this unfortunately isn't something that we've been doing so far, but something that we'd like to do. So for us, like just being better Ethereum citizens, I think being more conforming more to the standards that have sort of evolved around us are pretty critical. So that's the sort of the third prong of this is that we very much want to we really want to create this. We really want to rewrite a lot of the architecture, clean up a lot of the legacy code that we have which unfortunately we have quite a lot due to the nature of working on a blockchain and state being stored in contracts. And part of this, we're going to actually get, we're going to get better uh, support with all the other protocols on Ethereum. Is Ethereum scalability at all a problem for the day-to-day -day functionality of synthetics? I mean, it's an interesting question. I mean, it's a problem in that it's prohibitive to many people to use. Like, you know, the, the gas, the cost of gas, the way that we've architected the code, it's at a point where, you know, it costs, it can cost in somewhere between 50 to 100 something dollars for someone to, to issue, right? Dollars in terms of, you know, ether, the cost of ether right now to issue SUSD or to claim every week. And once you have a certain amount of, of SNX or, you know, once your rewards are high enough, that is probably okay for you. Right, but if you're not collecting enough rewards, you're not going to do that. So, it is a problem, and that we find that basically we've got to this sadly this kind of elitism, right? Where where the, we call them we call them the whales, right? The whales are able to do whatever they want, right? They can pay the cost of of a hundred and two hundred dollars, but the rest of us, you know, are stuck, sort of saying, well, we can't, you know, we can't do this thing, we can't afford it. So, scalability is is a massive problem. And, you know, things like optimistic uh, roll-ups that we work with, um, with optimism are going to help a lot. And there are going to be other layer two solutions like you know, ZK roll-ups or another one that are just going to help it this way, right? Because we're probably going to get it to the point where a lot of the real interesting innovation just will move off the main chain because effectively people just can't afford to be paying this. And, and you know, people can't, you know, the old sort of trope of the, you know, the artists move in when, you know, when a place is, you know, is affordable and they're the ones who have the ability to innovate and experiment. And we need to create that place again. 
And unfortunately, the main chain Ethereum isn't that. Maybe maybe the prices go down once the once a lot of the projects move on to layer two, but I don't think so. I think I think there's just too much. Like USDT, like Tether, for example, just puts way too much transaction load through the main chain of Ethereum, and I don't see that moving to a layer two anytime soon. Well, as we wind down, what closing thoughts would you give to the listeners? What would you want them to take away? What lessons would you want them to learn from the world of synthetic assets and synthetics? I mean, I think I actually would rather just say from Ethereum rather than necessarily synthetics and DeFi. I would say that, I would say that like for a lot of your listeners who aren't in the space, like it's fascinating. Like, it, like it's challenging for sure. As I said before, like writing code that that is going to be executed in a decentralized manner and, and having the backend be a blockchain and anyone can read data at any moment. Like it's such a different paradigm shift. And it took me a while. Like I like, I guess I pride myself on picking things up pretty quickly, but it took me months to really get my head around how this stuff works. And even now I'm obviously still always learning more, but I really think it behooves people to, you know, you're in the space. If they, if you get your architecture, you get, you know, you get infrastructure, you get databases, you go that, like try this out for size. Like it's pretty wild, but like, it's pretty incredible. Like this idea that anyone can get access and program money deterministically program money and it can anyone in the world can have access to it you know it just starts to break down the barriers that that you sort of i start to realize like wow we've just lived with for so long this idea that that money is controlled by governments and that that it's all set up and 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 and, you know everything we have to we have to sort of conform to what what structures are out there ever since i got into it and got deeper into it i realized like this stuff is is incredible and it's going to go some pretty crazy places and I think it behooves everyone to, to start being more aware of what you can actually do on a blockchain like Ethereum. You know, the innovation, the, the composability that I mentioned before, it's, it feels like we're at a point of like early internet, right? Like it feels like we're kind of in the mid to late 90s, perhaps even a little, maybe even closer to .com, but like people are starting to figure out that this stuff has got real, real value and we just need to figure out how to make it work. We're not quite there yet. And we're, I mean, we're not there with the internet either, but but. I feel like this stuff is, is a big deal and, and you really behooves you to spend some time, you know, and get involved in it. Cool. Well, Justin, thank you for spending some time with us and educating us about synthetics. Yeah, no problem. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Jeff.